One of the main narratives of consumerism that is pretty subtle, but it tells us that we should never experience our full cycle of emotions. If you feel bored, lonely, tired, inadequate, anything but that like dopamine excitement feeling, consumerism tells you to fix it, tells you you're defective. And it provides a solution in the form of a product or service or an experience that you can buy or something that you can consume. And when we over and over again deny ourselves the ability to feel our emotions, we're putting ourselves on like a dopamine treadmill, which is very concerning because we know that it can lead to depression and anxiety and all sorts of different experiences. This is the Conscious Economics Podcast, and I'm your host, Rhiannon Roseland. This is the place where we explore people, planet, profit, and art through the lens of the new economy. If you're interested in changing yourself, getting more creative, or changing the system at large, then this is the podcast for you. Tune in every other week as we explore these topics with amazing guests. We'll go deep, we'll go heart-centered and soul-felt as we go into how we change ourselves and change the world. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Conscious Economics Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Roseland, and we have an amazing episode for you today. I know I say that every time because this season has been, I think, our best season yet. We've had so, so many incredible conscious economy leaders on the show, and today you are in for such a treat. Um, Before I get into that, I do just want to touch in with you all and say again, a happy new year for those of you that may not have tuned in to our first episode, which aired two weeks ago with Anna, but just happy new year. I know it's been a slow start back for many people, and I know January in particular can be challenging because there's all this narrative around resolutions and making all of these big life changes, you know, as soon as the new year rolls in. And it's overwhelming. And I really feel like this year, and I don't know if that's just because I've been going through some personal family stuff or whether it's just the tone of this new year, but it feels like it came off to a slower start. Like I just wasn't as motivated to just go at it so quickly this year. I feel like the energy is just starting to kind of rev up now as we approach middle of the month. So interesting to note for sure. But one of the things that I think so many of us want to change when we think about resolutions or or things that we want to improve in our lives, I think the number one is like health and fitness. But money. Like number two is money Um, and people wanting to really earn more money or figure out their finances. And a lot of the times we get drawn into the same old places for this information. So we're seeing financial literacy, you know, information We're we're taking a really traditional approach, but you know, at Conscious Economics that we are not traditional around the way that we think about money and our relationship to money in the economy. And today's guest, Chantal Chapman, is 
of the same mind. So Chantal Chapman is the CEO and co-founder of The Trauma of Money. So she's considered a refreshing voice in the financial recovery and education space, uh, renowned for her cutting-edge, relatable, and trauma-informed money guidance. Drawing influence from 14 years of experience as a mortgage broker, 10 years as a financial literacy consultant, and extensive research in addiction, behavioral science, community economic development, trauma and mindfulness, she kind of combined all of these incredible disciplines and created the Trauma of Money, which is an accredited course certifying professionals or individuals in trauma-aware and trauma-informed approaches to finance. It is such an amazing, amazing organization. I'm so excited for you guys to hear our conversation Chantal's one of a kind. Um, she has just done so much healing herself and has overcome so many challenges. We talk about this in the episode, but what I love is that she's then alchemized all of these experiences into something that is so forward thinking, so in line with economic healing and the conscious economy. And I just can't wait for you to hear all about it. So without any further ado, the lovely brilliant and talented Chantal Chapman. Hi, Chantal. Thank you so much for being here. I know we were just chatting just a a few minutes before we started here, but I always go back to the first time that I met you and it was our common connection, which is a SEAL who's our in-house kind of financial therapist. And she had just done your trauma of money program and she was floored by the program, by you, by your story, by the way that you're building this incredible community in such a beautiful way. And so she was like, you have to meet her. And I remember meeting you and just feeling like, oh, I've met someone who is of my heart, like someone who just really understands and gets it and is operating through this conscious leadership lens. So welcome to the podcast. I know you talk about this all the time and it's it's difficult to talk about sometimes how we got to why or where, what we're doing now, but you do have such a profound and powerful story. So if I could ask you to just open up and I'll open up that container a little bit as much as you want to share, but just how you came to be doing this really powerful work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And everything you said, I just want to mirror back to you. I felt the same when we first chatted. So it's really a pleasure to be on this podcast with you. So yeah, my the journey of trauma of money. I mean, I started my career in finance at 21 years old, which is challenging. I was I became a mortgage broker at 21 years old and I was so young and and like any client that I may potentially get would look at me and be like, "Whoa, you know, do you even live outside of your family home and you're trying to do my mortgage, which is the biggest purchase of my life. And I kind of thought my career in finance started there and it actually started way earlier. But while I was mortgage brokering, the only clients I would get were people who were declined and I was like a last resort. So rather than helping people get mortgages, I was basically 
giving them financial literacy consulting to help them get in a place where eventually they'll be approved to get a mortgage. And I felt really activated by this, like really activated by the fact that people didn't understand some basic rules about credit. And I felt so activated because I was in the same position. I didn't learn really anything about money. And I thought the answer was to teach financial literacy in high school. So I opened up a financial literacy education business that focused on teenagers. And I did that for many years. And that kind of evolved into teaching financial literacy to millennials. And that evolved into me consulting right at the beginning of where brands started using, doing like content marketing strategies. So I started consulting for finance brands around like how to position themselves as an educator and an expert with this like financial literacy tone. And I worked on some incredible products like Canada's first ever free credit score, Canada's first ever digital mortgage experience. And while I'm doing this and like consulting in the corporate world and teaching financial literacy, I was like constantly in the media as a financial literacy expert. I had a very challenging relationship with money. I was always kind of finding myself like overspending in credit card debt. I was also under earning. I was under charging. I was using my money like a please love and accept me fund. Um, And I was just, I was just generally suffering. And I went through a period of like anxiety and depression. And I got diagnosed with PTSD and CPTSD while I was on the recovery journey of the anxiety and depression. And I had known, you know, like some of the reasons why I had PTSD. And, you know, that was because I'm a survivor of um, sexual abuse and I grew up in poverty with a single mother and the father figure that was in my life, he was a heroin addict. And so there was a lot of dysfunction and a lot of instability and a lot of scarcity, but I never really kind of related this to what was happening with my relationship with money until someone in my family called me from the downtown east side in Vancouver And he said, hey, can you come pick me up? I just got kicked out of a detox center. And I'm like, what are you doing at a detox center? And he's like, I've been hiding this for years, but I have a heroin and fentanyl addiction. And I threw myself into his recovery. I was like, I'm going to find you a rehab center. I'm going to help you. It was very hard to get him into a rehab center because It's just challenging to get a bed unless you have a significant budget to get one. And so he ended up going into a halfway house where uh, men were transitioning out of incarceration, but they they had addiction. And so they would go there after prison before they were basically allowed to leave the halfway house. And so I was going there like all the time. I was bringing them food. I was meditating with them. I was just like making his recovery my responsibility. And I remember this like such a clear moment. I was like, why did you do this? Like, why did you decide to do heroin and fentanyl? And he's like, you know, 
I cannot remember a moment in my whole life when I didn't hear these voices telling me that I wasn't good enough. I didn't make enough money. I'm not strong enough. Like all of these narratives that, you know, society places on men. And he's like, I just always felt so inadequate. And when he said that, I'm like, oh my gosh, me too. Like I always have this cycle of thoughts in my head. And I'm like, what am I using to soothe that pain? And then it just hit me. It was so clear. It was like, oh, it's the overspending for acceptance. It's the of financial avoidance because you're so exhausted from people-pleasing and caretaking everyone else. It's the under-earning, the under-charging, you know, and it's even me making his recovery my responsibility, that codependency. And that moment changed my life because it hit me that like why financial literacy wasn't moving the needle. How was it that I was a financial literacy educator, but I had the issues that I was teaching people not to do. And I realized, oh, it's trauma. And I went on a multi-year research journey exploring addiction recovery, trauma recovery, also community economic development. Like I really wanted to understand like at at a systemic level what was happening at a societal level. And all of this research brought me to this place where I asked the question, like what impacts our relationship with money? And I came up with this six layered model and it is the model that has now informed the trauma of money approach. And we believe these six layers are one, generational trauma and scarcity, two, relational trauma and scarcity, three, societal trauma and scarcity, four, systemic trauma and scarcity, five, we call laws of nature or biomimicry. And this is where we elevate different worldviews around money, like reciprocity, for example. Reciprocity is not always present in extractive capitalism. So what happens if we elevate that view? And then the last layer is financial literacy. And financial literacy was purposely last because of what we know happens to the brain in a state of scarcity or in a state of trauma. So I came up with this model. And then I was like, okay, I can't teach all of this. So I gathered an incredible faculty of different experts to really bring this vision and this curriculum to life. Oh my goodness. I just have to take a really deep breath in how beautiful this mission that you're on truly is. And, you know, when we had our first meeting, I just heard myself through everything that you said um, and found myself similarly leading one of the most prominent financial literacy, you know, organizations in the country through the Junior Economic Club of Canada. And like, same thing, same, you know, knowing all of the right things to do, technically understanding all the mechanisms of investing and saving and budgeting and, you know, going around, but secretly holding the truth of my own trauma of money and my own dysfunctional relationship, which for me, I didn't realize. It sounds like you might have realized a little bit earlier because I was also coping with other things like alcohol and the money wasn't so apparent to me. And it wasn't until I released, I I wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail kind of outing myself. And this was in the beginning of the pandemic saying that like I had this generational trauma of growing up in a single parent household in poverty with addiction and trauma and all of those things. 
And money was, yeah, the reason why I watched my mom, you know, be beaten. It was the reason why I thought that everyone was, you know, struggling with addiction because money was so stressful. And I had, you know, imprinted all of these beliefs that were definitely not serving me. And I went on a huge escapade of trying to buy love. And when I started to earn a lot of money, and that was one thing that I guess in in my story from early on, I knew how to earn. Like even as a 10-year-old, I started a business with my friend and started to earn money. So I had this imprintation as well that I could earn money, but then it would constantly flow out in me trying to buy love or validation or whatever these things are. And like massive shopping addictions and, you know, debt cycles and all of those things. But when the pandemic hit and my business, my other business, which was a live events business, was interrupted, I couldn't keep up the facade because it was always paying Peter with Paul's money. Like it was always that cycle. And so when everything came to an abrupt stop, I kind of joke like I got caught with my pants down. I was like, oops, like what do I do? And I was facing, you know, close to a million dollars of debt. So I had racked myself into that category and what that does to your nervous system. And I'm talking so candidly about this because I am not holding back anymore. We are on a mission at Conscious Economics, which is a very like-minded mission to the mission you are on of really saying this is what is driving our economic system right now are these true stories. And we are two settler white women here that are speaking from our, you know, lens, but there are so many different folks that are coming at these conversations from all various lenses. And if we don't start to speak about this, we're not really talking about anything because this is the core of all systemic change. And so obviously to make a long story long, which I've done, I'll just end off with saying, you know, I finally realized that and and I had, you know, done my own recovery around addictions and whatever else, but the money piece was still there. And it was probably the most shameful piece because my whole career was about economics and money and financial literacy. So imagine, you know, carrying around that fraud feeling, but I realized that that was something I carried from just a little girl. I always felt like I was, you know, basically bad and a liar and a fraud and all of these things because I would show up in spaces and have to pretend that my home wasn't the way it was or these various things. So I just thank you so much for, for how candid you are. And I know that that candid, way that you share is because this is such a deep passion for you. And it's really servicing people in such an incredible way. And I've talked to and heard and listened to countless people that have gone through the program. So can you talk a little bit? I know you talked about the six different layers and the financial literacy being at the end. Can you talk a little bit about how the program really works? And is it, I know you've got two fold, like you could be a practitioner, so someone who's working in finance, or you could be an individual who is just really interested in this topic and uncovering what's happening personally. So share with us a little bit about how how it all works. Yeah. Thank you so much. I just also want to take a moment to just like thank you for sharing your story and just like hold space for that share because it is so powerful and it's so healing for others to be able to 
to hear. So thank you so much. Yeah, so we run two cohorts a year, a fall cohort and a spring cohort. And we have a personal pathway and a professional pathway. So we have folks come through who are looking to just do some healing around their own relationship with money. We're not group therapy. We're we're psychoeducation. But because there's such a community aspect to it, and we really want to elevate as many stories as possible, it's got that kind of community sharing feeling in the space. We also have a professional pathway, which is to certify professionals in our method. Interestingly enough, when I first created the program, I thought it would be financial professionals coming through. That was kind of my dream. Like I really want to see financial professionals be trauma-informed. And we actually had in the first few cohorts, very little financial professionals and mostly trauma therapists coming through. Which is interesting because, you know, trauma therapists know all about trauma, but in a lot of the training that psychotherapists get and counselors get, there's not a focus on money or financial psychology or even the exploration of societal trauma and systemic trauma. So that was kind of, I think, the draw-in for a lot of mental health, like social workers and trauma therapists to do our program. And it still continues to be a pretty significant amount of professionals that come through. We also have, we're starting to get more financial professionals, which is incredible, but we also have a lot of folks who work in the not-for-profit space around like economic justice or also folks who work in social impact education. So, you know, like folks who write university curriculums for entrepreneurship, they have a big interest in the program because they see firsthand the individual narratives that come from societal narratives that are brought into businesses with the entrepreneur. So it's very relevant to them. 100%. It's so interesting too, because I think we're only just getting to the point in our society, especially here in the West, where people are even willing to consider that, you know, some of our subconscious programs and patterns or things that happened in childhood are impacting our relationship in business, you know, in management, in finance. And these are like, these two things feel like oil and water. I spent obviously over 14 years of my career on Bay Street. And I really felt like such an imposter in that space because it's just the frequency around all of these subjects right now that are so buttoned down tight. You know, there's so much repressed emotion really in these spaces. And so it's very, very uncomfortable for anybody who has lived in a different way and has much more or or wants to share more or has experienced some things that are just, it's like nothing's spoken about, but it's all so blatant in terms of how we all function. You know, so we're seeing that finance and money is a number one stressor for Canadians and that's regardless of their income level. So it's not like just because someone's wealthy, they're not experiencing trauma with money. And that is, you know, all of these things, which I know to you and and to us, these seem like, of course, but people are only just waking up to this right now. And I hope that one day all financial professionals in this country and around the world will have to take this program as part of their accreditation. It's really what's needed and it feeds into so many other things. And so that kind of segues into 
deciphering between the sort of generational, societal, systemic traumas and how they show up with money. Could you talk a little bit about like how a personal trauma may be and then what a societal or generational so people can understand what the difference is? Yeah. So, you know, the brain loves to find meanings, you know, like the brain loves to be like, oh, I'm an overspender because I grew up in a household and I always heard my mom say, you can't have that, put that back. So now I want to like treat myself, right? We could say, okay, well, this is relational trauma. This is maybe, you know, your mom was overburdening you with money stress. Relational trauma would be like something that you've experienced or haven't experienced in your lifetime that leaves you feeling unworthy or unsafe. This can be like big T trauma, like abuse, or this can be little T trauma, like, you know, consistently witnessing your mom being stressed out and not letting you get chocolate bars at the store. Not because she was explaining, you know, you can't have chocolate for dinner, but she's like, we can't afford that, you know? So that's an example of relational trauma. And a lot of the patterning that we have around money does come from relational trauma. But the thing is, is where did the relational trauma come from, you know? And in our research, we found that scarcity impacts the brain in a similar way to trauma. So if there's scarcity in your generational, your ancestral lineage, it's very likely that scarcity present that your grandparents maybe experienced or their grandparents, they might have raised their children with that lens of scarcity. And then it's passed on and passed on and passed on. So that would be an example of generational trauma or generational scarcity. And then societal would be the impacts that we experience from the dominant culture that we live in. And some of the biggest sources of societal trauma would be extractive capitalism, consumerism. You know, one of the main narratives of consumerism that is pretty subtle, but if you really tap into consumerism, it tells us that we should never experience our full cycle of emotions. So consumerism is like if you feel bored, lonely, tired, inadequate, anything but that like dopamine excitement feeling, consumerism tells you to fix it, tells you you're defective. And it provides a solution in the form of a product or service or an experience that you can buy or something that you can consume. And when we over and over again deny ourselves the ability to feel our emotions, we're putting ourselves on like a dopamine treadmill, which is very concerning because we know that it can lead to depression and anxiety and all sorts of different experiences. Another example of societal trauma is racism and patriarchy, white supremacy culture. All of these things that we see really impact money, the narratives around money, and also the systems. And that's why we also differentiate systemic trauma. We cannot talk about financial literacy without mentioning systemic trauma. Like, for example, one of the mm -hmm. biggest tips in financial literacy I hear all the time, automate your payments, automate your bill payments. Not mm -hmm. everyone has a bank account. Right. You know, Absolutely. there's people that are unbanked or underbanked and they pay 10% of their income to just pay bills. Yeah. Absolutely. You know? It's interesting because, you know, for years I was in the whole financial literacy world and 
intuitively because of my own experiences, I knew that there was something that wasn't landing and there's something so, I don't know what the right word is, but having like a banker in a suit come in and start like talking to young people of various backgrounds about like investing and like just having no emotional sensitivity or intelligence around what people might be experiencing or like how foreign that concept really is in a household where, you know, parents are working three and four jobs and are not able to, you know, take part in these things. And so it just, there was something that just felt so raw and wrong about it, but I couldn't quite articulate it until I went down my own journey of really healing for myself and understanding. And it's interesting that when you started your research going into like that addiction and recovery lens, that's definitely where I started as well. And just being like, what is happening to me? Like, why do I always end up in chaos and crisis? And why am I recreating the chaos of my childhood? Because that's the only thing that makes me feel like if I don't have a problem to solve, I'm not worthy to be here or whatever that is. And that dopamine addiction, which is so, so true. And, and you've articulated that so, so well. I know in, in the course, you have some incredible educators that are teaching on all of these various different stages that you spoke of. But I know you yourself educate a lot on financial disorders mm-hmm. and that there are some, you know, common financial disorders. And and could you maybe articulate some of those to our audience? Because I think that this is so fascinating for people to hear. So what we teach in our program is we reference the research of Dr. Brad and Ted Klons, who are pretty well-known financial psychologists in the U.S. They've done incredible work developing a list of financial disorders. We introduce their work, but we do run them through our trauma of money lens, which has us reframe the word disorder because sometimes the disorder approach can actually create more shame for the person dealing with the behavior that's unhelpful because disorder may say there's something wrong within you. And we actually want to look at disorder as maybe this is a natural way to adapt and to deal with the society that we live in that's very toxic around money, right? So that's how we kind of try and apply a trauma-informed approach to this financial disorder model. We've even renamed them when we talk about them with ourselves. We call them disruptions. So financial disruptions. So it would be a financial disruption or a financial disorder would be, and I'm going to use Gabor Mate's definition of addiction because it's perfect for this. Well, we do something over and over again to temporarily reduce pain and increase pleasure in the moment, but there's negative consequences. So for example, you're someone who might be a compulsive spender. They may be, and this is one of the disorders is compulsive spending. They may be compulsively spending because they're looking for that dopamine increase in the act of buying. Mm -hmm. We know it's compulsive spending if they don't care so much about it after they purchase it. Mm. Okay. It's like just like thrown over to the side. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's about Mm -hmm. the buy. And then, then there's overspending and it's like some people overspend because of affordability issues. Some people are mm-hmm. forced to overspend because who's not overspending at exactly. this juncture? Exactly. Yeah. exactly because yeah. of the economic environment. And we would never want to label 
that a disorder within themselves? We would say mm-hmm. this is a disruption because mm-hmm. you there's negative consequences to you overspending, but not let's not create this like cycle of shame and making it your fault because that's not going to help you get out of the situation. So mm-hmm. first, we always reframe it in that way because we're really focused more on like root cause and we're focused on decreasing shame, not saying, mm-hmm. hey, you've got a disorder. This is your problem, your right. fault. And so a few of them that we see a lot are like probably the biggest one that we see. Dr. Brad and Ted Klons call it financial enabling. I call it financial codependency. We see this a lot in identities that have been marginalized. And one of the reasons is because there's a trauma response called fawning. So this Mm -hmm. is when we people please in order to stay safe. And identities who have been marginalized were forced to people please in order to stay safe and to survive. So this might be the go-to reaction with money. And this is where under-earning and undercharging would manifest. This is where overspending would also manifest because we're overspending for external validation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's yeah. like, oh, if you accept me, I'm safe. Right. Also, you know, taking high risk with your money because you're not very strong with boundaries. Mm-hmm. And people have multiple of these, obviously, because I do. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. That's why we call it, like, we use the umbrella terminology, like financial codependency for all these different things. Mm, So it's basically the umbrella would be, the umbrella definition would be your fear of abandonment Mm -hmm. is so strong that you will abandon yourself in order to seek attachment. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is, and you do this by prioritizing everyone else's comfort over your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I am a really obvious case of this. Just the the level to which I allowed it to go, and it was always like because I was doing such positive things with money, you know, giving and providing opportunities to people and this and that. But like, I really didn't have the true means to be doing that at the level that I was doing it and absolutely fawning all of the time, not even really knowing what I wanted or liked because I just, you know, but that is a result of growing up in that household and children of addicts or alcoholics are, that's survival for us, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, yeah, exactly. When you grow up in a home like that, you, you become very hypervigilant to people's emotions, right? Mm-hmm. And we often will have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility for everything else around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is incredibly exhausting. And then pair that with having a really high profile or public facing job where I remember looking out at audiences of hundreds of people, you know, weekly and I could like pinpoint who had an angry face on. And then I would internalize that, that they were mad at something I did or, you know, it was me not performing and it didn't matter about how many kind eyes I could see. I zero in. I have like a 
beautiful talent for doing that. Some of these things are superpowers as well. I do think as long as we can, you know, make sure that we're not harming ourselves in the process, like the skill to be able to do that has served me in business incredibly as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so true. It is, it is a superpower. You know, folks who grow up in those environments are so they're empathic, right? Like they Mm -hmm. can read people's energies and know even before the person knows they're upset, they're going to be upset. Absolutely. My husband has to be like, okay, Rhiannon, because I'll be like, you did one tick with your eyelash one way. Like, what's wrong? And he's like, okay, <laughs> nothing. Or I I don't even know. Yeah. But it is so interesting. Mm-hmm. The Conscious Economics Podcast is brought to you by CPP Investments, manager of the Canada Pension Plan Fund. Canadians can be confident in the fund's sustainability. CPP Investments has earned more than $300 billion in the last 10 years and has more than $500 billion invested around the world. The Canada Pension Plan is set to provide a retirement income foundation for generations to come. To learn more, visit cppinvestments.com. Okay, so those th- those are the codependent yeah, ones. Yeah, and yes. then another one we see a lot is financial avoidance, and this is okay. So something that happens in a state of scarcity when the brain is in scarcity or believes that it's in scarcity, we experience something called bandwidth tax. And scarcity or the belief that we're in scarcity is like having like a hundred tabs open on your computer and the whole operating system slows down. So when there's actual scarcity present, we don't have the energy to budget. We don't have the energy to take care of our finances. So we might go into financial avoidance. But here's the thing. This happens when scarcity is not actually really present either. Because the way our economic systems have been created, like if you look at the American Economics Association, they define economics as the management of scarcity. So scarcity is like interwoven through our economic systems. We interact with resources from such a lens of scarcity, and it is impacting our brain. So you'll find more people who, who really lean into that scarcity mode, this scarcity thinking they don't like they avoid certain things because they're so exhausted. We also will avoid to stop pain in the moment, but there's negative consequences because even though you are avoiding, you can't really shut off. Like I have to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's constantly nagging at you, even if you're not looking at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a big one. The next one is financial rejection. So this is like a subconscious or conscious rejection of money. And this shows up like, you know, let's say you're really good at making money, but you Mm -hmm. spend it really easily. This could be because of financial rejection. And Mm -hmm. Brad and Ted Klons, they came up with this concept, which is pretty a pretty incredible way to describe this, is it's called the financial comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So if you go grow up in poverty, your financial po- comfort zone is going to be poverty. Mm-hmm. And so in order to stay in that comfort zone, you may subconsciously reject money. So mm-hmm. spending it, you know, or under earning, under charging. And we also see this not just with people who grow up in poverty, but people who also grow up with wealth who develop shame around their wealth. 
you know, if, if someone has wealth and they're, they're starting to see like, oh, you know, like maybe all this wealth was created because of my, my privilege and, and I'm starting to become aware of all the harms that have been done under extractive capitalism, what might happen is this rejection of money. And I see that a lot. Like I see that a lot, especially with folks who like choose careers in the not-for-profit space, you know, and they're really under earning. That entire industry is like underpaying people. Yeah. Well, I see it a lot in the artist community as well, artists and musicians. And of course, there's that common narrative that, you know, struggling artist, but there's also, you know, a belief around being an artist and being, you know, pure with your art and, and that you can't sort of be earning all of this money or taking money from certain sources and stay true to who you are as an artist. So there's lots of entanglements with some of these things. And I, I really notice it's increasing generationally with the younger generations right now because they are more informed around you know, trauma and racism and colonization. And they're very interested in ensuring that they don't perpetuate some of these things. But at the same time, if we're not careful, because we're in a particular system where we are using this currency as our resource for all things, if we if we embed that subconscious belief, then we end up keeping ourselves outside of, you know, the places that we need to be in order to actually create change and we just marginalize ourselves more. It's like we're just down on the street, you know, protesting, but really we need to be up in the office tower or whatever that may be. So it is so interesting to hear you articulate this. And I'm just like checking off every box. And although I'm recovering, I'm not fully recovered. Like my tendency will be to avoid even when things are good and well. It's like I pay some, I pay an accountant. I have the privilege of that at this point. And I'm very blessed to because I don't want to really look at it. Like I still don't. It it gives me horrible anxiety, even if it's fine. So it is something clearly that I still have to, you know, detach from. But it's interesting. I was doing some work with, I think it was the Investment Funds Institute years ago, and they were trying to do a big campaign around people not opening their mail from their investments, you know, not looking at what was happening in their accounts. And this is not just this is everybody. Like it's, it's so much more broad than we think. And so like whoever's listening here who relates to this, you know, and, and whoever doesn't relate to it, which leads to my next question, there's a lot of denial around money in particular. And that's why originally it's funny you said when you were in your financial literacy sort of phase, you thought the solution was just early education, early financial literacy. And I used to think that as well because I my, my reasoning for it was that once you get to a certain age, you have this level of, you know, pride around who you are as a financial being and you don't want to admit when there's certain things that you don't know. There's like a small window that sort of, you know, you are open to, you know, admit and learn and whatever else. But if you've reached that or passed that threshold, you may not articulate what it is that you know or don't or what you need. And so you, you posture and pretend. And that was also 
a big part of, you know, my career for 14 years being around all of these like high flying people. And there was just this posturing that was always going on, which is so damaging. And, and just, it's a, it's a reflection of our society and, and the trauma societally that we are all in where we're pretending that we don't have these emotions and feelings, like you said. So how do we deal with that part about the denial piece and those who are like, oh, well, well, this is fluff that these two are talking about because this isn't the issue. Like, how do we really address that? And I'm sure you've come across some of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is a question that I'm trying to answer in like the next phase of trauma of money is to to really connect with the people that are in that space of denial. And I would say like what I'm speaking of is more like wealth holders you know, and I think it's connecting to the pain points. And one of the ways that we found success is by talking about the psychology of scarcity, Mm -hmm. right? So they might say, well, I don't have financial scarcity, but do they have time scarcity? And we teach Mm -hmm. them a little bit about what happens to the brain when there's time scarcity present. And then we also Mm -hmm. compare that to maybe their relationship with money. And maybe even though they're a wealth holder, maybe they are experiencing a lot of suffering around money that they haven't even identified. And denial is a really interesting thing because there's conscious denial and then there's subconscious denial, right? I would say subconscious denial is the nervous system is wanting to protect you because you're just not ready to face it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like I just remember parts of my healing journey where I was just so disconnected because I just, I was not capable of doing that level of healing at that point, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I, I, I've experienced it myself. Like only in the last two years did some things start to surface in my own mind that I would have told you never, ever happened or occurred. And it was because I wasn't at the safety level in my own body and psyche and environment to go there. So I completely understand that for sure. And what are some of the other scarcities? Like there's time scarcity. Is there like youth scarcity or like age? (laughs) Because I think I'm having that now. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There's like youth scarcity. There's connection scarcity. There's love scarcity. Like anything that we put value on, it, it can be, there can be scarcity around it. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's perceived and real or whether it's just, yeah. you know, we're, we're feeling into it for some reason. Yeah. yeah. The brain cannot tell the difference. The brain doesn't know, you know, like this is really in scarcity or we believe it's in scarcity because the brain mm-hmm. reacts based on like what we, we look at something we're like, oh, it feels like scarcity. So if I'm on Instagram and I'm like, everybody's going on a trip and I'm not, my brain mm-hmm. is like, you're in financial scarcity right now. You're in scarcity. Right. Absolutely. It's it's so, I mean, we can't escape it almost at this point now with the way that the culture, you know, has progressed around social media and all of these things. Like, it's just so, it's so damaging in so many ways. Like, there's been a lot of good that's come, but there's so much damage that comes from constantly seeing that. And obviously the phone is listening and then sending you these targeted ads that, again, and this is one of the things that we teach at Conscious Economics of why someone should get to know themselves really and the things that trigger them and the things that excite them and, you know, their 
you know, their issues around dopamine or whatever it may be, because it's just become so intelligent, you know, the algorithm and everything else that it somehow knows how to get you at that exact moment when you're vulnerable. And I am the queen of having random Instagram things around the house. Like I've got all these ceramic eyeballs that are on the shelves and I got that ad, you know, or like unicorn pajamas with a crystal (laughs) zipper. Like, how'd you know? (laughs) Like, it's just ridiculous. So it's crazy. Who, if you could like select who you'd really, really love to do this program that hasn't maybe done it yet? Like, could you articulate like not a particular specific person, but like, who do you want to, to end up reaching with this? Cause you mentioned the people who are naturally coming, have the big banks, you know, gotten on board, like where, where are we with that? So that's kind of our dream is we want to like, we want to roll out an organizational certification And our dream is to see some of the banks proudly say, we are trauma of money certified. And what that means is not just their frontline staff is getting certified, but like their product designers, you know, Mm -hmm. like imagine what a branch would look like if it was designed in a trauma-informed way. Like I'll go to a bank branch and I'm just like, you've got like people you can feel the tension that they've got to discuss their personal stuff right standing next to someone else, you know? it's Yeah, I know. Or like just different products if they were designed with an awareness of how scarcity impacts the brain. And then also I would love to see executives of financial institutions understand some of the content that we're teaching, not just for the products or the services that that they offer, but for themselves as employers and, Mm -hmm. you know, and the people that work for them and, and just kind of understanding at a deeper level, like let's start like humanizing the corporate world a bit by understanding what people bring into the space. Or, you know, you've got an executive who is maybe leading top down and what traumas is that executive bringing into this, the culture of the organization? 100%. 100%. And these are all the things that right now, the way that we're seeing them trend in the news is talking about the future of work and the she session and everyone's leaving and we can't find you know skilled talent to stay in these positions. And really, it's a lot about exactly what you said. It's And especially with this you know up and coming generation that just won't tolerate anymore. Like they're interested in doing their work. It's, you know, kind of the first generation that I'm seeing. I'm an old millennial with a gray whisker. So I'm like at the (laughs) real tip of it. But looking at the young people, I'm so inspired by how interested they truly are and open they are to therapy and to all of these different things to understand themselves. And they are not going to work in that void chamber of emotionless patriarchy. Like they're just not doing it. And so if we want to really be able to evolve our economy, our workspaces, this is exactly what we need to understand and what we need to know. And that's, you know, part of our whole philosophy at Conscious Economics. It's we cannot have any new system design without bringing that deeper conscious awareness as to what is really, what are we walking in with to begin with? And what do we continue to perpetuate when we are unconscious? 
So I love it so much. I could talk to you for 10,000 years. I also feel a surge of excitement of just, you know, and I know we've kind of said this before, but offline once we're finished, I really want to figure out like how can we support each other and how can I support you? I believe in what you're doing so deeply to the core of my being. I feel it. And I know that this is what we need. So Thank you so much for that. As we end off, would you just let everyone know where they can find how to sign up and what the kind of cohort schedule looks like and all of those good things, any cost-related stuff and, and all of that good stuff? Yeah. Thank you so much. And the feeling is so mutual. Like I would love to support the incredible work that you're doing too. And I also just want to point out, like you said that you're feeling energized that's dopamine. And I'm feeling that too. And like, there are amazing, healthy sources of dopamine out there, which we can access through like reclaiming our pleasure and excitement outside of consumerism. So just thought I'd throw that in there. I love it. And I'm all for it. We need to do a separate show all about that because it's so true. Just even, you know, the simple joys of being in nature and all of these things that we can get. And it's so true. We don't need, you know, consumerism on steroids and all of the rest. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, so you can find us at thetraumaofmoney.com. Our next cohort starts March 8th and it runs for either 15 weeks or 17 weeks. It is also recorded. So if people can't attend live, they can watch the videos. And it's all digital. It's not in person. It's all digital. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And we've got payment plans. We have scholarships. We have sliding scale. So there's like accessible pricing options as well. Mm, That's so awesome. I want to do it. I've been saying I wanted to do it. So maybe you'll see me in this cohort because I just think it's so important. And thank you again so much for all of this. You are just such an incredible conscious economy leader. And so we're so honored to have you on the show and we'll link everything below as well. And I am so excited for all of our listeners to hear this episode and know that there is support available because it's, it's going to change our lives. It's going to change the world. That's how we're going to do it is exactly what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you so much. I am obsessed with her. (laughs) What an amazing, amazing person. What an incredible organization. Uh, For those of you that are interested in taking the Trauma of Money course, we will link the website below in the show notes. And I am just floored. I'm floored that I get to do this work where I can have conversations like this with people that are truly changing the world. And when we think about big systemic issues, big economic issues, Um, inequalities, injustices, it feels overwhelming at times. And then you hear of something like the trauma of money and you hear of someone taking their own personal lived and, and, you know, working and career experiences and turning them into something that is truly designed for systemic change. So it's just, it's amazing. It's such an honor. And I hope you all enjoyed that incredible episode. For those of you that want to learn more about conscious economics or get involved, please do check out our website, consciouseconomics.ca or Lunar Studio 
studios.ca if you are an artist and wanting to get involved with our music platform that's where to find it we're of course on all social media platforms and please do like rate review this episode so we can continue to grow and reach more folks and do what we're trying to do so thank you so much we'll see you again in two weeks and i hope you have a beautiful restful rest of your week bye for now